When I knew it was time to talk about divorce, I thought I should come prepared. <laughs> well, I thought we should at least start with a little laugh, okay? So, uh, that thing is incredibly heavy. Despite the laughter, it's not a funny subject, and I don't mean to say that it is. In fact, we all know it's a tough subject. And we all know it's not a theoretical subject. As I was preparing this week to talk about this, and my stress level was growing, I realized that there's probably not many people sitting in any of the pews in this room today who have not been touched in some way by divorce. Whether you yourselves or parents or children, relatives, close friends, it affects us all. And it's a tough subject. It's tough for everyone. It's tough for every family. In some ways, I think it seems to be especially tough for Christians. Um, it, it shakes the family structure itself it strikes at the very foundation of our society, which is the home. Uh, we've learned how painful and how stress-filled the cost of divorce is. And so for all of those reasons, we've struggled, and we do struggle, and the church struggles. I can remember as I was a young child becoming aware of life and reality, my first cousin, who was a, almost like a sister to me, lived down a farm down the street. It was Ken and Barbie. She had gone to Bible college, married a minister, and their marriage dissolved in divorce. And in the early 60s, that was unthinkable. And it shook our family. It shook her. It shook our church. And in the beginning, the church's reactions to divorce were, were, were tough. I think it was scary, and so out of that fear, churches reacted pretty extremely. And I think we just need to be honest about where we've come and where the church needs to be today. And there were many times when many churches basically communicated a message to divorced people that you were beyond God's grace and you were not welcome at the church. And it was over spiritually. And yet divorce grew in the church. That strong, very strong, disciplinary approach didn't protect the church from divorce. And divorces came. They came in leaders' families, in leaders' children. And they came more and more. And the church had to soften its position. And yet, and yet in the process, that position has continued to soften to where now I've heard people say to my face that I'm sure this divorce is God's plan for my life. I'm sure God wanted this love to happen with this new person because he put that love in my heart. It's okay with God. God's just fine with it. And so some would say it's no longer a big deal. And yet we're talking about it today because it is a big deal. It is the second highest challenge families have said we're concerned about today. And if you look at the list, the number one highest is sort of external and I can't control it. 
So of all the issues that I have any control over, divorce is the highest one. I've read on numerous occasions that among grade school children in the United States today, their number one fear is not being abducted. It's that mom and dad will divorce. So it is a tough issue. It's a big issue. It's an important issue. And so I want us to talk about it today, both in a Bible level, a a scriptural foundational level, and a practical level. As I do so, the one thing I would ask of you is don't assume what I'm going to say and listen to all I'm going to say. Because we probably all have some stereotypes about what the church says and what preachers say and what the Bible says. And uh, let's just go on a new journey today. What does the Bible say? If we go there and we start digging around about marriage and about divorce, what does the Bible say? Well, Jesus was asked that question. And the first thing that Jesus says is that God's design, God's plan, is that one woman and one man get married and make a permanent commitment to each other. Now, that doesn't always happen, but that's where we need to begin. I want you to turn over with me where Jesus has asked this question. It's in Matthew 19. And it was a loaded question in Jesus' day. So I guess we shouldn't be shocked it's a loaded question today. In Jesus' day, he was asked, what about divorce? And that very question was a trap. And I'll explain in a few minutes why, for Jesus, it was a trap way back then. Uh, And we're going to read some more from here, so keep your finger here. But I want to begin with verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Remember that, any and every reason. Haven't you read, he replied, that that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female... And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I want to stop there for just a second. Jesus is going to get to their question about divorce, but notice where he begins. Let's go back to the beginning. And so he goes all the way back to Genesis. And he says, this is how God designed it to be. This man and this woman would love each other, and they would glue their lives together, and they would become one. And I intentionally left out the word flesh, because we've come to define that as just the sexual union. And when we do that, we miss what God is saying in Genesis 2. The word he is saying there is, I'm I'm a woodworker as a hobby, and, and the word he says there is in woodworking, you can make a, the, the ideal joint is where you have two totally flat surfaces and there is nothing else in between and you put a thin coat of glue there and you clamp them together. And if you'll give me two perfectly flat surfaces with no junk in between, no sawdust, no dirt, and you let me glue those together and clamp them, you'll break the wood before you'll get that joint apart. That's the concept of the one that is used in Genesis 2. These two are going to be clamped together so tight that that A and B become C. 
They are now one. And obviously, that lasts. That's the, that's the beginning. That's the original design. And I think we can admit today and, and agree on that whatever else life may take us, I've never run into anybody who doesn't come back and admit that's the way it should be. Whatever else has happened to us in life, that's the way I would like it to be. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that and keep that as a goal. As that which we hold up, that which we teach without apology, this is God's original design and plan, and this is what we want to urge people to do. Now, Jesus goes on and keeps talking there about, okay, but what about divorce? Sometimes that theory doesn't happen. Okay, let's keep reading what Jesus said in verse 7. So he says, here's what God designed. They come back and say, well, but Moses said we could divorce. Verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Moses' law was a concession. I, I put Moses' law and what they're talking about. Wait a minute. There. Is Genesis 24. And here's what Moses said. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he should give her a, a written paper of divorce. What was really happening there is back in Moses' day, people were throwing off their wives for any reason, and those wives were just left on their own. And so what he was real, Moses was really saying is, you can't just dump your wife like the trash. First of all, this is the only reason you should put her away, and if you put her away, you owe her a written certificate of divorce. It was a protection for the women. That's what Moses was saying. Now come forward, 1,000, 2,000 years to Jesus' day, this had become a huge controversy. Remember I said earlier, Jesus was being, uh, trap was being set for Jesus? That phrase there, he finds something indecent about her, had become a huge ar a point of argument in Jesus' day. And we know this, we have all kinds of written documents from the Jewish scribes giving their opinions. And there were two extreme views. One view was that that referenced uh, marital unfaithfulness, adultery. And only if a woman committed adultery could she be put away. But there were others, and they actually had become the majority by Jesus' day, that said, you know, if I see a woman who looks more attractive than my wife, my wife is no longer acceptable to me. She is indecent. She displeases me. And so that was a good enough reason to give your wife a divorce. If I really get tired of her cooking, and her cooking's not real good, she burns the toast in the morning. She is now displeasing to me, and according to Moses, I can divorce her. And so, though we do not picture it that way, the reality we found is that in Jesus' day, they were experiencing a plague of divorce. 
for the most minor flippant reasons. And women had no rights, and so husbands could just dump them and walk away without any repercussions and without any limits. And so Jesus is trying to come back at them and say, wait a minute. First of all, let's go back to what we should be aiming at and talking about and concerned about, and that's God's ideal design. And that is where there is no divorce. And then he said, now if divorce happens, there is only one way that it should happen. And what he talks about there, if I can put it into our terms, he said, if you have these two blocks of wood glued together and they are one, and through adultery somebody has already broken that oneness and they're no longer one, then you can put a certificate to it and call it divorce because it's already broken. But he also says that's the limit around it. Because the primary issue is that oneness, that union. And that that is there and that's the focus. And if it's been broken, then the union is broken through adultery. And he recognizes that. Now there's one other passage that I want us to talk about. And in a sense, this goes back to the dog leash and the baseball. And that passage is in Malachi. Because you don't sit around and talk about divorce very long in the church until you hear this passage, God hates divorce. And obviously that has caused a lot of stress for people who are divorced. And how does that mean God feels about me? Uh, This has been used as a huge baseball bat uh, about people dealing with divorce. And we just couldn't talk about divorce without going there. Uh, It's in Malachi. Chapter 2, last book of the Old Testament. I want to pick up in the second half of verse 13. You weep and wail because God no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? Why isn't God listening to us? Why isn't God accepting our offerings? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? Genesis 2. In flesh and spirit they are his, and why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. We'll stop there. This passage is not about a mean judge. And and just lifting out that phrase, that's how we make God look. What you do have is a loving father who is brokenhearted as he sees his children hurt each other. I think one of the greatest pains for a parent is to watch one sibling hurt another sibling and you're a spectator watching that happen. And you just want to intervene, you just want to slap some heads together, you just want to put them in a room and say, work it out. Because it's killing you when you watch a sister hurt a brother, a brother hurt a brother, a sister hurt a sister. From God's perspective, both those people in a marriage 
are his children. And the children of those people are his children. And he says, I'm watching you cast off your wives flippantly. And when I see that, I hate it. I hate the pain. I hate how you're hurting each other. I hate how you're denying your commitments. It is a loving father who is saying, I hate what I see there. That's not a mean judge. You're hearing an upset father saying, look what you're doing to each other. I hate what I see there. The one other thing I want to say, because this has been a message that I think at least some churches and Christians have given off and divorced people have been left with, and that is the Bible nowhere says that divorce is the unforgivable sin. And I've watched that message go out. I've seen people destroyed by that. I find it interesting that no one is labeled 10 years later, well, they lied 10 years ago, or they stole 10 years ago. But we'll label people they were divorced 10 years ago. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's missing the mark. That's the the Greek definition of sin, is missing the mark. It's saying, here's the target, shoot for it. Here's where God wants us to hit. If you miss that target, if your arrow goes into the wall, you've missed the mark. And that's the literal definition of sin in the Greek language. That's what divorce is, along with a lot of other sins. God has said, here's the theory, here's the target, hit it. One man, one woman, glued together for life. That didn't happen. We missed the mark. And it's a sin like other sins. A sin that can be covered by the grace of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. I think the church is changing on that, but I think we need to be clear on that. So what do we do? Here's this theory, but we know it's a struggle, and some don't make it. What do we do? I want to move to more practical ends now. And to me, the first thing is, let's see what we can do to prevent divorce. Whether we make 100% or not, we can still make our first focus trying to say, let's cut down on the number of divorces. How do we do that? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that we strengthen marriages. We intentionally say, I want to divorce-proof my marriage. As a church, we want to divorce-proof the marriages in this church. How do we do that? Well, I think, first of all, we need to see marriages as a savings account. You have to make deposits if you want to make withdrawals. And I think a lot of couples make some deposits when they first get married, and they build up a balance in their savings account of marriage. But they get busy, and stuff comes up, and they quit making deposits. And they keep making withdrawals. Tough times, hard things, conflict, neglect, whatever. And pretty soon, the account goes bankrupt. And so when I say strengthening marriages, what I'm talking about is we never grow beyond the point where we need to keep making deposits in our marriage account. We need to keep treasuring our marriage and strengthening it and feeding it and helping it grow stronger. We need to work at communicating. We need to make it a priority that we spend time together. 
And we've talked about busyness and all the other stuff that's working against this. And we need to fight that. And we need to say there's not much more important than my marriage, so it has to be high on the priority list that we have time together, that we communicate, that we express our love in actions. There's a book I want to point you to. If you haven't heard about it, you need to go get it. It's a Christian book. Put out by, I think, a couple Christian counselors or one. Um, I'm going to say it wrong. The Five Love Languages. The Five Languages of Love. Who knows? Okay, one person's. <laughs> the Five Love Languages. Okay, head's nodding. The Five Love Languages. And, and what it's all about, it's sort of that concept of men are from Mars and women are from Venus. But it's real. It's true. The problem is in marriages is I'm saying I love you to you in my language. The problem is you don't speak my language. So all you're hearing is gibberish. And we, we've all been there in our marriages. And he says, you don't love me. And I'm sitting there saying, what do you mean? I just told you I love you in 42 different ways. My way. And you're honestly sitting there saying, I didn't hear you about I love me at all. Because you didn't hear it in your language. And this, the whole premise of this book is that there are actually five different languages or five different ways humans express and hear love. And in marriage, we're probably not going to be married to the person who uses the same language we do. And so one of the challenges is learning my spouse's love language and they learning my love language so we are expressing and communicating love in actions and words that are heard and understood, and we feel loved. That's part of of strengthening our marriages. Keep serving each other. Keep helping each other. Keep having fun together. And sometimes for young families, that means without the kids. And you are a good parent leaving your children with a trusted mature babysitter so that you and your spouse can have some time together. I remember hearing years ago, you want to love your kids? Take their mom or dad out. That's how you love your kids. And that's true because you're strengthening the marriage. Grow. Grow your marriage. We are blessed with a wealth of books DVDs that you can purchase at Northwestern Bookstore that help us understand marriage and strengthen our marriages. If there's an area of your marriage you struggle with, there's resources in that specific area, whether it's conflict or finances or whatever. There's retreats that you can go on to build up your marriage, classes that are offered. Things that we can do to intentionally say, I want to make some deposits in my marriage account. I think one of the other things we have to do to strengthen our marriage is to consciously, intentionally say, the picture of love I get out of the media and love in the real world are not the same. The media says love is an emotion that is fickle and it comes and goes. No marriage lasts with that definition of love. The love that builds a marriage is an intentional decision of the will. It is a a decision I make and say, this is what I will do. Feelings are a roller coaster. 
and they will come and go. You know, couples come up and say, I don't feel like I love him anymore. Well, welcome to the club. Every couple has been there. Every relationship after six months to a year. Sorry, there's a few newlyweds in the crowd. You know, emotion's a roller coaster. That does not define love. I thought this would be a fun thing to do. Check your marriage for the real love. I rewrote the section of 1 Corinthians 13 that, where Paul said, this is what real love is. The love that builds a marriage. And I put it in the form of a checklist. Now, you don't get to fill this out about you. You give it to your spouse and let them fill it out. Would they say, love is patient, our love is patient? Uh, would they say, our love is kind, it does not envy? But if you break down what Paul writes there in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13, it makes a great marriage checkup. Because if you have this love in your marriage, I'm willing to give you a written guarantee. Your marriage is going to work. This isn't an emotional feeling. This is commitment and action. Love and action. And that kind of love builds a marriage, strengthens a marriage, makes huge deposits. And that's what we need to strive for. And not what Hollywood pictures marriage should look like or love should look like. So that's the first thing we need to do to divorce-proof our marriages is intentionally strengthen our marriages. The second thing that we need to do is I think we need to be wise about temptation. Divorces don't just happen. Now some people will try and tell us that. I woke up one morning and I was divorced. None of us believe that when we hear it because we know that divorce doesn't just happen. What we need to do is stop the process early on so we don't get there. Notice what Malachi said. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You see, the stopping of divorce begins in that first phrase. That guarding ourself in our spirit. That watching temptation and what is creeping into my heart. We need to honestly face feelings that we may be allowing to come into our heart, our thoughts that are inappropriate. And when we detect those, we need to be brutal as any athlete in training and say, that does not happen. That is not okay. We need to confront our temptations, and they will be different for each one of us. But what situations are tempting for you? What people do you need to not be alone with? What people do you need to not be joking with? What people is touch not appropriate with? And we need to be brutally honest with ourselves about those temptations. And not rationalize, not say, oh, it's no big deal, or that could never happen, or anything like that. Satan is a roaring lion working to devour us. And we need to take that threat very seriously. Scripture does. Here's two verses. Avoid even the appearance of evil. Flee, run away from evil desires. 
we need to take temptation extremely seriously. And that's one way we will divorce-proof our marriages. The third one, and I ask you to listen through this whole point with me, is that we need to honestly face the real costs of divorce. Sometimes we see people in their pain say, this is an easy answer. It's not. The truth is, the objective truth is, there are huge costs to divorce. And the financial costs are the smallest. The emotional costs to each other, to ourselves, and especially to the children, are enormous. And we need to face those costs before the divorce. And here is the reason I have this point in here. I've had more than one person say to me, if I knew then what I know now about the cost of this divorce, I would have worked harder to save the marriage. When they've actually paid all the prices and seen all the pain, I would have worked harder. And that's the person I want us to see and say, I want to face that cost so that I would have worked harder. Now, having said all of that, and thank you for staying with me, sometimes divorce is still going to happen. And we need to talk about that as well. And there's all kinds of reasons that I'm not going to spend time with because you know them. But there's reasons why divorce happens. And I understand that. And there's situations I've seen and things that have occurred where I've said, I I don't think you had a choice. And and I won't deny that. I'd love to. But, But it's reality of a broken world. So, so what do we do then? Where does that leave us? Uh, first of all, I want to talk to us as, as an individual Christian. When I'm left and I'm that person sitting there and I've had to face divorce, where does that leave me? And, and we've all known people, and some of you are them, who said, I didn't want this. This was not my dream. This was not how my life was supposed to turn out, but now I'm here. What do I do? I think the first thing we need to say is that we need to know that God has not abandoned you. God is not done with you. God loves you. See, I think sometimes we've made the mistake of hearing that Malachi passage where God says, I hate divorce, and we've somehow transferred that to I hate divorced people. And that's not what Malachi says. God loves you. He still loves you. And the blood of Christ can deal with what has happened in your life. It's not over for you spiritually. Please do not feel that. I think that's a foundation. On that foundation, I think one of the practical things is to gather good friends around you. Loyal friends, supportive friends, and honest friends. And I realized as I was reviewing this sermon early this morning, all of these practical things, in all candor, are what I've watched people who go through divorce not do. And, I, and I never, they never said, am I doing this right, Jim, or, or help me. They've just said, this is what I'm doing. And I sit there thinking, 
wrong. And this point is in here because you know what I watch divorced people do? Some. I don't want to stereotype. Sorry. I've watched some gather their other friends who are also divorced and say, this is my pool of advice. And they get the worst advice possible because everyone is so subjective on the subject in that pool of friends. It's the last place they need to go to for advice on this subject. And that's why I say, make sure you have good friends around you who will speak the truth and are seen honestly and objectively and will affirm you where you should be affirmed and will ask you the tough questions. That's the only way you're going to get good advice in this tough time. The third thing I'd say is allow other people time to process. I've watched again and again when I've gone through the process and I've reached point, this point and now I start telling other people about this and they don't react like I want them to right off. And I get upset and I get angry with them when the truth is they need time to process. I've just shocked them. Maybe I've knocked the feet out from under them. And I've watched... I've watched people going through that divorce right off those friends because their initial reaction wasn't right. If you give those friends two weeks, they'll have a different reaction. Don't judge them based on that first reaction. They need time to process that too, just as you need time to process that. And too often, because of the emotion of the moment, we immediately start a list of those who are for me and those who are against me. And we force people into one of those two lists rather than giving them some time and space to process like I've had to. The next thing I would offer as advice is don't avoid the process. You are on a journey and that journey will take time. Because it's painful, I see sometimes people want to short-circuit that process. They want to cut it short. They want to get married again or whatever it is. Finish this and move on. The problem is sometimes that process is exactly what is needed for our growth, our processing, our healing, for God to refine us. And though it may be painful and we want to get it over with, it's exactly what is needed is some time. And we need to allow that and not avoid what God is trying to teach us. The last thing I would mention is focus on your learning. One of the greatest challenges of divorce is the bitterness and anger towards the previous spouse. And everything they have done wrong and how bad they are. But I can't change them. The only person I can change in this is me. And so in this process, I need to focus on what do I need to learn. When couples come to me who want to get married again and one has been divorced, one of the questions I will always ask is, what have you learned out of the first one? Where are you a different person today? I'm not assigning blame. I'm just saying, what have you learned out of this first process, this first marriage? Because I think there's things we all need to learn in any such situation. That's not a complete treatment of what do we do. I can't do that in one sermon. It was some highlights that struck me. Before we close, there's one more thing we need to talk about, and that is what does the church do? 
What does the church do about divorce? It's not going to go away. There's two general areas I want to touch base on real quickly. One is we need to intentionally say as a church we want to work to prevent divorce, strengthen marriages. We don't have to be ashamed of that. We need to teach about marriage. We need to offer classes. There's some excellent material today. I would love for us to be able to start this where mentoring of marriages happens. Where um, young couples or couples struggling do a study, but they do a study with some veterans who have strong marriages, and it's not just a class setting, it's a mentoring setting. So these couples, in a, in a friend way, not a counselor way, are helped to learn and strengthen their marriages. We need classes. Classes before they're engaged. You know, I have to be honest about this as a minister who does premarital counseling. When Susie and Johnny are sitting in front of me in my office and they've got that ring on, reality has vanished from their lives. They are so in love and Camelot is waiting for them. And to try and tell them that I think a train wreck is waiting for them, I might as well talk to the wall. I think, and I've heard of some churches that have done this They've started offering sessions for pre-engagement. If you think you're even interested in that other person, come to this class. That's the time there might be some intervention possible. But those are the kinds of creating, creative things the church needs to be offering to couples. I think we also need to remove any stigma from Christian counseling. And help people if needed to see a Christian counselor. That's something the church can do to strengthen marriages. But it will happen. It will happen in this church. It happens in any church. No matter what we do to prevent, it will happen. And when it happens, we as a church need to go into ministry mode. How do we love the divorced person? How do we come beside them, not dismiss them, not ostracize them, but know that we are there and loving them and trying to help them. And doing that in concrete ways. I think especially ministering to the children as their whole world has been torn out from under them. And how do we minister to them? Look for specific needs. Whether it's the guy who's lost the, the help of, of his wife or the wife who's lost the help of her husband what are the specific things they're struggling to take care of and how can we help them in that time? I think, and what I've tried to present to you today, is that we are called by Christ to walk a balanced path. I think we need to teach the ideal without apology and not allow anyone to say, well, then you're against divorced people. Because that's not true. I love how Christ could do this. Christ was able to stand up and say, here's the way you should live. And yet he, all kind, he had all kinds of sinners around him who hadn't made it, who'd missed the mark, but they did not have any doubt that Christ loved them and was ministering to them. And that's the balance I think we're called to as a church, as Christians, to teach and urge and strengthen marriages and yet when that doesn't happen, for whatever reasons, 
to come around people to love them and help them through a tremendously painful time in life. For that is their greatest moment of need. I know that what I preach to you today is in part a reflection of my cousin's experience. Because when Margaret was divorced from her husband, pastor and wife, she will tell you in a heartbeat the time she needed the church most was the time the church ostracized her and would not touch her. And for 10 years, she would not go near the church because of how the church failed to love her and her need. That'll never be said of this church, and I don't ever want to be a part of a church that that would be said of. We need to teach the truth and love those who struggle. I think that's what Christ did, and that's what we need to do. We're just going to close with prayer today. Would you stand, please? Father, sometimes, as you warned us, Jesus... um, We live in a broken world, a fallen world, and it's hard. And what we've been talking about today is perhaps one of the hardest subjects we have to deal with. As we see our own marriages or the marriages of our parents or our children or our friends dissolve, and we see the pain, as we struggle to strengthen marriages and not divorce, Father, I ask for your help in this. I ask for your help with people right now in this room struggling that we don't even know about. I ask for people struggling today with the effects of divorce. And I ask your help for this church. That we would be a church who finds that balance that Jesus found. Of teaching the truth and offering that to people and loving people who don't make that. Father, no greater prayer could be than to help us be like Jesus. In his name, amen. Thanks.